How about you, Mr. Connor? You drink, don't you? Alcohol, I mean. Oh, a little. A, li a little? And you a writer? I thought all writers drank to excess and beat their wives. You know, one time I think I secretly wanted to be a writer. Damn, dude. You don't need to come out with that wife-beating stuff. Damn, dude. And we're supposed to like you. No, 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 no. Carrie, Carrie, Everybody and welcome to the Cinema Psych Podcast, the podcast where psychology meets film. Welcome to the numerical 50th episode. Welcome to you. I am your host, as always, Dr. Alex Swan, and yeah, the 50th episode. I honestly, when I first started this podcast, three years ago we're we just passed our third year anniversary so congrats thank you for listening if you're listening to this one and have been listening to others over the last few years boy oh boy oh um yeah three years little did i know when i was going to start this podcast three years ago um that i'd be still doing it that i'd still be here doing it and still really enjoying myself like I am not like oh man I gotta do another podcast episode you know by far the hardest part is really just uh getting a, a friend or some person new or old to get on you know it's always hard getting getting uh new schedules uh, or schedules meshed up and that by far is the hardest part. Everything else is so much fun to do from the watching the movies. Of course, that's got to be um, right there. Number one, got to like to watch the movie to then talk about it. Because really, honestly, I don't want to talk about movies that I have to slog through. And that that that's part of the, you know, chatting with the guest hosts and making sure that we are both you know, interested in, in watching, if it's not something that I have seen before, interested in, in opening up and, and looking into that. So watching the movie, number one, talking about the movie, number two, finding all of the psych stuff in it. Like there is, there are so many movies out there that you can use in psych classes and talking about psychology concepts in general. And I am such a huge fan of using that expertise in the film realm and as I continue to do this podcast more and more I'm hoping the goal is for at least another 50 episodes get to 100 once that goal is reached we'll see where we're at maybe that'll take another three years it likely will take another three years but that's okay I mean I this is not my source of income or full-time job so Another three years is likely, and that's okay. To, so that's my goal. What we do after that, you know, is um, I guess we'll see. I guess we will see. 
So, yeah, 50th episode, this one, and I thought I'd do it myself uh, rather than, you know, trying to, again, coordinate schedules with some of my friends. This movie that we're talking about today, The Philadelphia Story, The Philadelphia Story, it came out in 1940, 1940, so right before uh, the U.S. got pulled into World War II, or at least a couple of years before that, or yeah, somewhere around there. Um, and so a lot of the movies had a the feel of the previous decade, and that's pretty apparent in this movie as well. So what are we going to do? Well, before we jump into talking about this movie, uh, I just want to make a, a couple of show announcements. As we said, this is the 50th episode um, around uh, around the 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 third year anniversary it's, that was um actually the third year anniversary is today the day of recording july 29th that's when i sort of mark it as when the first episode went out i believe it was july 29th um i could be wrong <laughs> uh anyways uh so a couple of of show announcements and then um looking you know looking f- into the next academic year and and what kinds of of movies will be on the next act academic year, so on and so forth, as well as some changes to uh, some of the things that I I mention in this show periodically, as well as on the websites and the social media like Facebook and and Twitter. So the Patreon uh, is going away. I don't really want to get any more emails from Patreon uh, about things that I could do to increase uh, activity on it. It uh, never really caught on, and I don't know if I would have been able to do the things that, and so I guess I'm lucky I would not have been able to do the things that I said I wanted to do. I mean, I made that Patreon like two years ago, so... so we are going to scrap the Patreon. Patreon's going to close. I know none of and none of you normal listeners or any new listeners doesn't really matter because you weren't engaging with it anyways and that's okay. So we're just going to scrap that. You won't hear me talk about it anymore. Uh especially in my um little uh mid mid rolls about lovely to lovely ways that you can help support this show. So we're really going to just do straight merchandise sales so make sure you get those at uh, cinemasychpod.spreadshirt.com that's how you can find our merch you can go to cinemasychpod.swansych.com to find the merch store it's right there right up at the top of the screen you just click on that if you want some merch help support the channel uh if you're a fan of cinema psych and you like the logo get it on a sweatshirt get it on a t-shirt that's all right you know if there are phrases that have come out of this show that you're aware of send me a message I'll put those on t-shirts and and sweatshirts and all of that stuff. I will help you help me if that makes any sense. So if you want something you're like, I really love the show, but I don't want the logo because that doesn't make any sense. But I do want this phrase he always says or this joke he always says. I love quoting people. You know what I'm saying? So... If that's your jam, send me a message and let me know if there is a phrase I overuse. 
probably um without further ado is un is likely to be uh up up that alley right there um i was gonna do okay so <laughs> this was me like thinking oh what i'm gonna do for the 50th um episode the three-year anniversary and i was gonna string together all of my hey guys hey guys hey guys hey guys hey guys hey guys in a and a, and a thing and it would have been I think it would have been hilarious but I understand if you would have been like what so I'm probably not going to do it just because I don't really have the time to go through every single episode and just cut out that chunk but if you feel like you want to do that and you've got some editing skills please be my guest be my guest and paste together all of my hey guys hey guys, you know all of that paste those all together if all 50 times that would be amazing so anyways paypal uh in addition to the merch so if you want to help the show um pay the bills i would you know i wouldn't say no to that i appreciate all of the the help that you might be willing to support you know it's just enough to buy me a coffee maybe you know i'm not looking for a whole I'm not looking for a whole, you know, hosting uh, arrangement. That's totally fine. I I, I don't need that. Uh, but if you want to support the channel in, in some ways, really, my favorite thing, if you do this, if you love the show and you love the people that are on this show, buying merch would be the best way to support this channel, mainly because you would help advertise it as well. <laughs> I mean, I'm not gonna be. I'm not gonna be uh, sneaky about it. it. It shows me that you like the show, and then and you like the podcast, and then and the content and the people that are on it. But then it also does act as another way to advertise it. And you're like, oh, what's what's the Cinema Psych podcast? Oh, oh, oh. See, that's how we grow audiences, and and um. Oh, boy, I would love to grow this audience. I'm okay with the audience that I have now. Don't get me wrong. I would love to grow it, though. I don't have a lot of means to grow it, and that's okay, too. Again, I like doing this show. I like doing the show, and we'll do it for however many lives it takes to get to my ultimate goal of 100 episodes. We've got 50 more to do after this one. So, yeah, 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 let's do it. Let's do it. Coming up uh, on uh, in the next year for the show, we've got um, we've got Jason Spiegelman returning next episode, and um, he's going to bring along a fun movie that um, near and dear to his heart, I suppose. We'll find out more. Um, and one you might not consider to be psychology relevant. I mean, of course, I'm going to argue that all movies are psychology relevant. But in this case, I don't think so. And then we've got some common ones coming up. You know, uh, we've got... Uh, oh, boy. What else have we got coming up? Oh, yes. And Jordan Waggy is going to be coming up 
uh, soon in an, in an upcoming episode, we're going to talk about a movie that is used to be one of her top ones, but with her current research focus, kind of makes her cringe. What is she talking about? Stay tuned for that episode coming in a couple of months. And um, well, uh, we're going to be welcoming some old voices and some new voices to the show. So stay tuned for the next, you know, 10 or 20 episodes. You'll see. You'll see. Actually, not see, but hear, of course. You'll hear what we have in store for you. I am looking forward to it. I hope you are looking forward to it as well. All right. Those are the announcements that I wanted to make about the show. Let's jump in to the movie discussion without further ado. (laughs) Okay, as I said, it's just going to be me today. It's just going to be me on this episode. And we're going to be talking about a movie that I watched a few weeks ago, last month, for the first time. Because I have been going through the AFI's top 100 American films and it's on both lists they made one in 1997 to commemorate their 100th year anniversary and then they made a 10-year follow-up back in 2007 this movie the Philadelphia story that is the trademarked it's not a Philadelphia story it's the Philadelphia Philadelphia story um, is on the AFI list, and I was like, hmm, well, I'm going through these AFI movies, top 100 movies, which ones can I watch? And so I've watched several uh, that I hadn't seen before. I'm, I think, about at 60 out of the 100 now. There are a few on there that I'm like, I don't really want to watch. I don't. Uh, so, you know, it might be slow going getting those last 15 or so, but that is the goal. The goal is to watch all 100 and maybe all 100 plus because there are two lists where some movies left um, from the 97 version to the 2007 version. So, you know, anyways, that's that's the goal. That is the goal. Watch all the movies. And so I ended up watching this movie and I had a great time watching this movie i had a great time um it again came out in 1940s so the sensibilities of this movie are quite different from any rom-com that you would see today but i feel like um there are a lot of tropes that um sort of start burgeoning in this um burgeoning tropes um, for rom-coms that come out, you know, starting in the eight 1980s. So we're talking like 40 years later, 1980s and 1990s, and of course into the 2000s when trope after trope after trope. So this movie particularly is one that I like because um, while it has, you know, 1930s, 1940s sensibilities as opposed uh, uh, with... Um, with traditional gender roles and how they consider stories and and all that sort of thing, I really enjoy, I really enjoyed it. You know, save for the 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 uh, casual um, domestic violence line from Cary Grant, people probably thought that that was super hilarious back in 1940. It is probably the cringiest um, aspect of this movie. And for something that came out in 1940, that's saying a lot. I mean, 
don't get me wrong. George Cooker, who directed this, he, he, you know, towed the line a little bit. I mean, it is a very time-linked cultural movie, right? As many movies are, right? Just, like, considering the, uh, ex- the overt racism in Dumbo, for example, or... Um, the way that uh, that D.W. Griffith made the KKK seem like the good guys in A Birth of a Nation. So, of course, this is a movie of its time. It stars the amazing Catherine Hepburn. Amazing Catherine Hepburn. And one of my favorite things about Catherine Hepburn is that she had this... Um, uh, the, her accent was very high um, mid-Atlantic of the time, right? So the mid-Atlantic accent is like, I don't know what you're talking about. I think you're crazy, right? So it was that, um, it was that blend of, of, uh, of Eastern United States, mid-Atlantic slash uh, North Atlantic, maybe not quite New England, and then a, and then, uh, a few... Bits and pieces of British pronunciation. Hello, fancy seeing you here. And so that was the that was the mid-Atlantic uh, kind of accent of the twenties, thirties, and forties when talkies, especially late twenties into the thirties, when talkies um, sound movies started making uh, their headway past, way past um, silent films. Like in nineteen thirties, it was. Uh, talkies, 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 and then silent film creators were like, oh, but what about us? And then really, by the late 1930s, they were done. They were done making silent movies, and Charlie Chaplin was um, there just going, oh my God, what is happening to the way film used to be made? And it's like, well, get on the, get on the train there, Charlie. Get on the train. So that mid-Atlantic, so that's what I love. Uh, There's a very long tangent to say that I love how uh, Catherine Hepburn talks in this movie and carries that through the rest of her career. If, if you've seen any late career, late life interviews of Catherine Hepburn, she still talks like that. Um, and it is really hard to change your natural accent or an accent that you've been working on for so long. And you just end up just in that mode the entire time. And that makes sense. It also stars Cary Grant. Oh, I, I've been watching a lot of, of, of older movies over the last few months. And I got to tell you, Cary Grant is so fun. He also has that mid-Atlantic accent. And his mid-Atlantic accent is pretty good. Uh, I don't know about you, Red. Uh, I've been trying to... Yeah, <laughs> I can't really do it. It's so good. Kittredge is no great tower of strength, you know, Tracy. He's just a tower he is phenomenal. He is phenomenal in this movie as just an instigator, needler, just being in the right place at the right, right wrong time, slash, wrong place, wrong time, sort of. Right, this is a this is a rom-com. This is a what is considered a screwball comedy. So, you know, there's a lot of uh, fast talking. Uh, making sure that uh, the dialogue really never stops unless it's really supposed to be um, a emotional, dramatic scene. 
But most of the other times, they're just talking constantly. The final big star is uh, James Stewart. Oh, Jimmy. Well, I, I mean, I, I don't know what to do. Uh, uh, Tracy. Tracy Lord. Yeah, I can do... Uh, I can, I've seen It's a Wonderful Life many times. It's generally something that I try to watch during Christmas time. It's my favorite Christmas movie of all time. It's a really great look at what, uh, you know, the kind of... It's a time travel movie. I'll tell you that. It's a time travel movie. Clarence is a wizard. He's a wizard with a time machine... I don't care about Angel, all the Angel stuff. He is a wizard taking him on a time machine into an alternate reality. It's a time, it's it's an alternate timeline movie. That's thank you, MCU. It's an alternate timeline movie. Anyways, I love his character in that movie. And he sort of plays a down-on-his-luck writer in this one which does have a lot of parallels to the movie that he makes a year later in 1941, which is It's a Wonderful Life. So, I mean, he, he has the same affectation. He won the Oscar for this. Um, he won Best Supporting uh, Oscar for Best Supporting Actor Oscar for his uh, portrayal in this movie. And he thought, that is ridiculous. He said it himself when he accepted the award that year. This was only the second Academy Awards, I guess. The second annual Academy Awards, because the first one started in 1939. Uh, so he won, he won then. And um, he, he, has, he has said repeatedly that um, it was likely um, past credit for uh, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, which came out the year prior, 1939. So uh, I got to give uh, Jimmy here a, a pass on that. I think he did phenomenally in this movie. And he play, he goes all the way. He goes up and down, uh, sideways. He tries to needle everyone just the same as everyone's needling him. And one of my favorite scenes is of uh, James Stewart, Mike, in the movie. Or Macaulay is his first name, but he goes by Mike. Um, goes to C.K. Dexter Haven's house, played by Cary Grant. Um, drunk, <laughs> fake drunk, obviously. It's always lovely seeing older actors, or at least, you know, back in those days, act drunk. Now, if, if that's not something you haven't seen before or haven't paid too much attention to, oh my gosh, you need to do it. It is, it is so fun, especially... Um, Stuart in this role so he goes to uh, Dexter Haven's house and um, he just thought to himself you know in this take I'm gonna start hiccuping George Cooker didn't know he was gonna do that and neither did Cary Grant and in the scene in the scene that was put to film and put in this movie Cary Grant smirks and puts his head down so he doesn't full-on lose it. Then he ad-libs, excuse me, to one of uh, James Stewart's hiccups. It, phenomenal, and, and they just play off each other. They just go back, and then um, 
Uh, James Stewart ad libs. I've got the hiccups. Can I have another drink? <laughs> to get rid of his hiccups, he pours himself some more, some more champagne. I love it. It's so good. It's so good. Oh. Oh, I wonder if I might borrow a drink. Certainly. Coles to Newcastle. Excuse me. Hmm? What's this? What's it, my book? Yes. Sick here, Dexter Haven, you have unsuspected depth. Oh, thanks, old chap. But have you read it? Well, I, I was trying to stop drinking. I read anything. And did you stop drink drinking? Yes. Your book didn't do it, though. Are you still in love with her? Or perhaps you consider that a very personal question. Not at all. Liz thinks you are. Liz thinks you are. But of course, women like to romanticize about things. Yes, they do, don't they? Yes, they do, don't they? I don't know. I, I can't understand how you can have been married to her and still know so little about her. Can't you? No, I can't you. I have the hiccups. I wonder if I might have another drink. Certainly. Thank you. So those are the main players. Uh, Ruth Hussey is also in it. She plays the foil to um, Mike Connor, James Stewart's character. She plays Liz Embry, uh, the his photographer. All right, so let's talk about this particular, uh, and then we'll get into the psych stuff. Okay. So, the movie is about Philadelphia socialites Tracy Lord and C.K. Dexter Haven who impetuously and impulsively get married and um, uh, get divorced really quickly. Um, the reason for the divorce, well, uh, Tracy can't stand uh, Dexter's drinking and Dexter drinks because he can't stand um tracy's constant needling um and so their divorce which is portrayed without dialogue in the beginning of the movie um involves uh them pushing each other and and her tossing out his golf clubs and um and it ends with him grabbing her by the face and just shoving her backwards into the door so he can leave um that uh domestic violence that we were talking about Oof, rough in any case, a um, couple of years, fast forward to a couple of years later, it is announced that Tracy is marrying an up and coming dude named uh, George Kittredge. And he doesn't come from money, but he's made a name for himself in finance and, uh, and other businesses and, you know, nouveau riche is a term that's uh, given to him as, you know, just somebody, somebody who worked their way up through the business world. He's also an aspiring politician, and he idolizes Tracy, etc. Now, on the other side of this setup is Mike Connor, James Stewart, and um, Liz Imbri, played by uh, Ruth Hussey, 
They work for a tabloid magazine called Spy Magazine, and um, they hate it. They both hate it because they both hate the publisher and editor-in-chief by the name of Kidd, Sidney Kidd, and they want, uh, or, and he wants the two of them to go spy, (laughs) hence the name, uh, on this wedding. And the cover story is that they are friends with uh, Tracy's uh, brother, Junius. So they have that. So they get invited over to the Lord Mansion. And because they're guests of, or they're friends of, I should say, um, the brother, Junius, who, I mean, it's not actually real. That's, um, that's, That's just the cover story. And that they were invited to the wedding by Junius. And so um, their their goal is to get the real story on why Tracy is marrying George Kittredge and all of this. And um, they end up getting invited into like the inner circle. And, you know, <laughs> it's, it's very, very strange. Um, the idea is that they already know that Mike Connor is a writer and he's just writing about the Lord's. Including um, how uh, Tracy's father, Seth Lord, was caught with a uh, with a showgirl, as uh, and so the idea is that they were gonna release the the Sydney kid was gonna release these to say that you know uh, Seth Lord is having an affair with a New York showgirl, yada yada yada. And so this this whole web of ridiculousness is how the rest of the movie transpires. And throughout this um throughout this we see a a fighting uh if you will over Tracy Lord by Dexter, by Mike, and by George her fiance. So her ex-husband, this new random dude in her life, and her f- current fiance, soon to be husband. Well, just to you know, just to put this to bed. Spoiler alert: It's been out for sixty years, sixty-two years. Um, Tracy does not get married to George Kittredge, and instead, she gets married back with uh, Dexter Haven. She gets remarried to her previous husband and that's because of the way the movie is built it's built for tracy to learn about herself in a in a less glamorous way to be exposed to who she is as a person from all of these different people, the three guys who are trying to vie for her affection, whether, you know, the whole Mike Connor thing is really just a proxy for his affection for Liz. And that notwithstanding, I mean, ostensibly, they are all trying to get to um, Tracy. But it also um, there's a there's a poignant scene between uh, her Tracy and her her father regarding these um, allegations of an affair and all of that, and so there's a there's a back and forth between them. And so the main psychological thing that I want to talk about um, after we go through some of the main stuff, actually, 
The main thing that I want to talk about is how Tracy comes to learn about herself. And so this is one thing that I teach in, when I teach social psych. I'm going to be doing that um, this coming semester for uh, organize, organizational leadership folks. Um, is how we formulate our self or our sense of self. And how do we come to get to that information regarding our sense of self? Who do we think we are? And what are the sources of information that give us what we think and who we think we are? And so I think when I was watching this the first time, I was like, this is clearly the aspects that I talk about with um, formulating the self. Oh, I'm going to use that. I'm going to use this movie for an episode of the podcast. And here we are. So formulation of the self. So there are, um, I would say, how many do I usually go over? I usually do uh, seven different ways. They're all interconnected in their own way, but seven different ways that a person can learn about themselves. Okay. And so again, this movie is an exploration for Tracy to figure out what she really wants in life. And through a series of vignettes, basically with either Dexter or with George or with Mike or with her father or with her mother and her sister, you, you see these various concepts being played out. So let's go through these various concepts of how we figure out and learn the truth about ourselves. What are the ways in which we formulate the self? So the first one that I like to talk about is um, has to do with you sort of in a vacuum. How do you learn about yourself and the things that you like, the things that you dislike, the things that you want to do, the way that you behave, all of that stuff. Well, it comes a lot. I won't say all. Like a lot of it comes from just exploring your memories and exploring your experiences through introspection. Now, Tracy doesn't do this a lot throughout the movie because most of the time she is speaking with another character. Another male character tends to be the case. Um, but there are certain moments where you can see the wheels spinning before she starts to say something. And it makes a lot of sense. There's a great scene between her and Mike where she is listening to Mike tell her things. We'll go through um, that one in just a minute. But during uh, when Mike is telling her all these things about her, how she's glorious and, and beautiful and, and magnificent, she looks down. She's looking around and she's like, now I'm getting self-conscious. Don't don't do that. Um, you can see the introspection wheels turning, right? Tracy, what do you want? You're wonderful. <laughs> There's a magnificence in you, Tracy. Now, I'm getting self-conscious. It's funny, I... Mike, that's... Yeah? I don't know. Go up, I guess. It's late. A magnificent... 
magnificence that comes out of your eyes and your voice and the way you stand there and the way you walk. You're lit from within, Tracy. You've got fires banked down in you. Hearth fires and holocausts. I don't seem to you made of bronze. No, you're made out of flesh and blood. That's the blank, unholy surprise of it. Why, you're the golden girl, Tracy. Full of life and warmth and delight. Well, what goes on? You've got tears in your eyes. Shut up, shut up. Oh, Mike, keep talking, keep talking. Talk, will you? I've stopped. Why? Has your mind taken hold again, dear professor? Well, good thing, don't you? Don't you agree? No, professor. All right, lay off that professor stuff now. Do you hear me? Yes, professor. It's really all I am to you, is it? Of course, professor. Are you sure? Why, yes. Yes, of course. Let me tell you something, No, don't Tracy. all of a sudden I got the shakes. It can't be anything like love, can it? No, no, it mustn't be. It can't. Would it be inconvenient? Terribly. Anyway, I know it isn't. Oh, Mike, we're out of our minds. We're right into our hearts. That ought to have music. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? Tracy, oh, you're so as if my insteps were melting away. What is it, about our feet of clay or something? Tracy. It's not part of the pool. It's just over the lawn and in the birch grove. It'll be lovely now. Tracy, you're tremendous. Put me in your pocket, Mike. So there aren't very many self-reflective scenes, but there are very poignant self-reflective moments. The first one for me has to be how she finally gets the courage after learning that uh, Sydney Kidd has the photos of her father. She gets the courage to speak bluntly to her father and be like, what, what are you doing? And he immediately comes back and says, that's none of your business. Um, this is how you do stuff. And she's like trying to figure out, well, do I want to be a socialite? Am I happy being in this little ivory tower or on a pedestal? Um, and she explores with her father in this moment how she's behaved in the past. That's introspection. How she's behaved in the past. What... Um, what it means to be a good partner to uh, or in a marriage, um, all of these kinds of things. She's like, you know what? I haven't been a great person. Why would anybody want to hang out with me? I'm not nice. So, I mean, she she goes she goes a little bit further in other moments too, especially exploring her past relationship with Dexter. And then when she finally comes to the realization at the very end of the movie, when she realizes, I'm not going to marry George Kittredge. He's not the right person for me. She realizes when they're talking about uh, a sailboat 
that um, they had when they were married um, called the True Love. He gifts uh, Dexter's gift to Tra- wedding gift to Tracy was a replica model replica of the True Love um, that apparently can float, which is really cool. I want a model. I want a handcrafted sailboat model. That'd be amazing. Anyways, um, and she finally realizes I wasn't as good as the true love of this boat. True love was oh, was a great sailboat, but I wasn't great, was I, Dex? Oh, Dex, I'm such an unholy mess of a girl. Well, that's no good. That's not even conversation. But never in my life. Not if I live to be a hundred will I ever forget how you tried to stand me on my feet again today. Oh, you? You're in great shape. Oh. Tell me, what did you think of my wedding present? I'd like my presence at least acknowledged, you know. It was beautiful. And sweet, thanks. Yes, yeah. She was quite a boat, the true love, wasn't she? Was and is. My, she was yar. She was yar, all right. I wasn't, was I? Not very. Oh, you were good at the bright work, though. I made her shine. Where is she now? I'm going to sell it to Ruth Watrous. You're going to sell a true love? Mm-hmm. For money? Sure. To that flat old rum pot. Oh, well, what does it matter? When you're through with the boat, you're through. Besides, it was only comfortable for two people. Unless you want her. No. No, I don't want her. Well, I'm designing another one anyway. Along more practical lines. What'll you call her? I thought the true love second. What do you think? Dexter, if you call any boat that, I promise you I'll blow you and Ed out of the water. I'll tell you what you can call her if you like. What? In fond remembrance of me. The easy virtue. Now, shut up, Red. I can't have you thinking things like that about yourself. Well, what am I supposed to think when I... Oh, I don't know. I don't know anything anymore. Oh, that sounds very hopeful, Red. That sounds just fine. <laughs> And he sort of forgives her in that moment. So these introspective moments are few and far between, but they are also very poignant. And like I said earlier, this is when the talking gets slow and it's less a screwball, screwball comedy and more of the romantic drama part, the, 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 the dramedy part. Some of it does get a little softened by quips, either from Dexter or from, from Tracy in this moment. But I think it still works. I think it still works. Now, the second way, and this is by far the vast majority of the movie, the second way that a person learns about themselves and, and comes to know their, their self is through what is called reflected appraisals. This is when we learn about ourselves by interacting with others. So this, as opposed to... Uh, introspection has to be done with other people. You have to do that. You can't. Introspection can happen with with or without people. Most of the time, it's without people. But reflected appraisals require others. Okay, and this is seen throughout the movie. 
um, and we learn things from other people about Tracy. Okay, so um, again, Tracy is called out by Dex about how she treated them when they were married, and that's why he uh, that's why he um, was driven to drink because she was always nitpicky and was just not a nice person toward him. How cold she was, how um, top of the food chain idea that was in her head, maybe a little bit of youthful ignorance, okay? There's one great scene where um, Dexter says to her, That's the gist of it. Because you'll never be a first-class human being or a first-class woman until you've learned to have some regard for human frailty. It's a pity your own foot can't slip a little sometime. But your sense of inner divinity wouldn't allow that. This goddess must and shall remain intact. There are more of you than people realize. A special class of the American female. The married maidens. So help me, Dexter. If you say another word, I'm I... through, Red. For the moment, I've had my say. And then Seth Lord says, You have everything it takes to make a lovely woman except the one essential, an understanding heart. And without that, you might as well just be made of bronze. Right? So Tracy's constantly being told that she's been really unapproachable over the last several years. You know, as she's grown up and gotten older, she can't just be mean to people. And then on the flip side, as she's going through this tumultuous 24, 48 hours before the wedding, she meets this guy named Mike who is sitting there telling her how wonderful she is when they're both drunk it seemingly ends up as if they go to bed with each other until the next morning when they both say that they didn't do any silly things. Uh, it was just really early in the morning and they were out by they were down by the pool and they never actually went back to their rooms. So you've got this juxtaposition between who Tracy was and how she is behaving now. And there is some disconnect there, which is obviously good news for the end of the story. Tracy ends up, you know, revealing to Dex that she's sorry for how she treated him and she wants to try again. And that's why they end up getting married at the end of the movie. And um, and and that she says to Mike, like, it, it was never going to be you and it was never about you. You kind of just helped me along there. So these reflected appraisals help Tracy figure out who she is from the inside so she can better understand herself. The third way that I like um, that I that I like to add when I tell um, uh, when I talk about formulating the self socialization okay this is a big one for the movie uh, because it is is pretty important that um tracy her family the lords her family dexter haven are all um powerful families in the philadelphia area and so they are elite of the elite class they are socialites they pretty much don't need to work and so they don't get that um kind of of self-exploration through the hard work, they kind of just have um, things done for them and they can do whatever they want, basically. And this is how Tracy is socialized. And so 
you can imagine that that's a very cold world to be in. And this is somebody speaking from the outside in of that world. I'm not a socialite. I've I've never been rich, so or I've never been wealthy or by any stretch of the imagination. So it just seems like that's that kind of and that gets portrayed in media a lot, right? That kind of um, uh, behavior, that kind of uh, socializing. And we kind of have this great juxtaposition between Tracy, the one of the main female characters, and Liz, who wasn't raised with a silver spoon, and and how they act with each other. It's um, it's quite fun. It really is. And then a fourth way, context, right? So the context of this plot matters. It's a loose plot, but the context matters, right? We're talking about a marriage, and we're talking about all of the things that come into a marriage, all of the buying for affection, all of this stuff. So marriage is a pretty big deal, right? I mean, you're going to, you know, go into a partnership with somebody legally and financially and all of that and of course the love thing is a part of it and this this is a big thing in um you know 1940s us too it's like what does the marriage signify of course this is tracy's second marriage and this is um george kittress's first marriage so there's a there's a lot going on there right but the context is important for tracy because this context the situation gives her the impetus to start self-reflection to start figuring out who she is who she wants to be into the future and so it's uh according to dexter it's a perfect time for her to be doing this does she really want to be marrying a man like george and she realizes that no she doesn't want to marry a man like george and that's because he idolizes her. And while that seems like an important part for a marriage, it's not important for Tracy, she comes to find out. Oh, George, to get away. Somehow to be useful in the world. Useful? You, Tracy? Well, I'm going to build you an ivory tower with my own two hands. Like fun you are. You, you mean you've been in one too long? Well, I mean that and a lot of things. I, uh... You know, we're going to represent something, Tracy. You and I and our home. Something straight and sound and fine. Then perhaps you're friend, Mr. Haven, will be somewhat less condescending. George. You... You don't really mind him, do you? I mean, the fact of him. Fact of him? What do you mean? Well, I mean... Well, you know that, that he ever was my lord and master, that we ever were... I don't believe he ever was, Tracy. Not really. I don't believe that anyone ever was or, or ever will be. That's the wonderful thing about you, Tracy. What? How? Well, you, you're like some marvelous, distant, well, queen, I guess. You're so cool and fine and, and always so much your own. 
There's a kind of beautiful purity about you, Tracy, like, like a statue. George. Oh, it's grand, Tracy. It's what everybody feels about you. It's what I first worshipped you for from afar. George, listen. First, now, and always. Only from a little nearer now. Hey, darling? I... I don't want to be worshipped. I want to be loved. Well, you're that too, Tracy. Oh, you're that all right. I mean, really loved. But that goes without saying, Tracy. No. No, now it's you who doesn't see what I mean. I... It's it's really a great, you know, flip of the script, so to speak. Haha, <laughs> pun intended. Pun intended. Because Tracy thinks that everything's going fine until Dexter shows up and then these two interlopers, Mike and Liz, show up. And it's hilarious how they figure this whole thing out. And then I think icing on the cake for this context, because remember, not only is the marriage going on, but the reason Mike and Liz are there is to um, get additional information about the Lords because Sidney Kidd has these revealing photographs. And so the fact that Mike and Liz are there, tell Dexter this is, this is what's up, gives Tracy all of the things that she needs to sort of figure out that this is not where she wants to be. This is not what she wants to be. A fifth aspect of formulating the self comes down to culture and gender. I'm going to put a pin in that one, and we'll talk about the um, time period and the cultural cultural light, the culture of you know 19 late 1930s, early 1940s America. So I'm going to put a pin in that one. So the the next one I want to talk to is social compare. Uh, talk about is social comparison. Social comparison is comparing yourself to others. There are um, different ways that you can socially compare. You can compare to the people who are in a class above you. You can compare to people that are yourself to people that are in a class below you. You can make a um, same class comparison. There's a lot of comparison uh, comparison going on in this movie. Most of it is really just from the. Mike and Liz, not rich people, trying to make ends meet, doing the things that they don't like doing because it pays the bills. That's why Liz is not, you know, the kind of photographer that she wants to be. And Mike is not the kind of writer that he wants to be because they need to pay the bills. And so there are these upward social comparisons from them to the Lords and and Dexter Haven and uh, uh, and a lot of um, um, mouth flapping about that. And then there's a lot of downward comparisons, although many times downward comparisons make somebody feel better about themselves. It's a boost to self-esteem. But I think the movie does a really good job of showing Tracy that when she makes a downward comparison to Liz, who has also been married one time before, uh, (laughs) one that she doesn't like to talk about, one that she doesn't offer up um in conversation and only said out loud when she is asked to be Liz or uh Tracy's maid of honor and she's like mm, a matron of honor um a guy named Joe yep uh well that's enough of that and so 
even even though Tracy's making downward comparisons to Liz, they do have a lot of things in common. And it's not so much to make Tracy feel better about herself. That would make probably make her more snooty as a Philadelphia sh- socialite. It actually works in the opposite direction, makes her feel a little more bad about herself and how she had been acting, uh, according to, you know, Dex and uh, her father, Seth Lord, and what they said about her um, when I mentioned, you know, self uh, or reflected uh, appraisals. And I think that's really smart because it it grounds Tracy as the time goes on. We get closer to the wedding day, the wedding morning. She's just like, Liz doesn't have all of these problems. Why, Why am I the way that I am? And she uses Liz for that uh, comparison. It's it's great. It's a great downward comparison. And um, throughout really gives pivotal moments to how Tracy recognizes how poorly she's acted in the past. Finally, uh, another way, uh, a final way that we learn about ourselves, you know, after gender and culture, which I've put a pin in. Self-perception. So this is uh, Daryl Bem's self-perception theory. Um, It spawned out of uh, Festinger's cognitive dissonance theory. And the idea is that um, we want our attitudes and behaviors to align. And so how best do we do that? Well, we observe ourselves. We observe ourselves doing things. So this is kind of like introspection, except introspection is just thinking inwardly. This self-perception theory is based on looking at my behaviors, doing what I'm doing, and then thinking, oh, I like that or I don't like that, and and then aligning my attitudes to my behaviors because I'm apparently doing this, and so why am I doing this? Well, it's because I like doing this, for example. Uh, I use pizza. Why do I like pizza? Well, I ate it one time, and I really loved it, so I ate it again, Um, And I really liked it again. And so I can say that after several more iterations of this behavior, eating pizza, I can say that my attitude is that I really enjoy pizza. And so this is this is perhaps um, one of the stronger ways that we learn about ourselves. And one of the pivotal moments in the movie is when she confronts her father about these photos and whether or not he really had an affair with this showgirl. And um, he gives her a stern talking to and it's like, you know, it's none of your business. And um, I mean, even if I did, it's none of your business. And and uh, it's between me and your mother and and. um you know, you should probably think about yourself before you start accusing me of all of these things. You should look at yourself and the behaviors that you're doing. So very um, related self-perception and reflected appraisal. And so she figures it out from drinking <laughs> alcohol one night with Mike. And it it really just sort of, it, it's an epiphany to her, I suppose, Um, As far as the self-perception is concerned, it's an epiphany to her that she learns about herself in all of the, I don't know, less than stellar ways. Like, let's be honest, getting um, getting blackout drunk and kind of not remembering the vast majority of the night. Not a great, not a great idea. 
uh, by any stretch of the imagination. Could could end very poorly. You could die. You know, if you get that kind of if you get that drunk. So, and this is only the second time that it has ever happened to her, and she recognizes that. This is the only this is only the second time that this has happened where I've gotten this drunk and I've done this amount of weird behavior that perhaps maybe I'm more like that weirdo than I think I am. And that again helps the the rest of the film sort of wrap up after this weird night with Mike wraps up and um, then of course she has more um, introspection etc and she she figures it out she figures it out and then the end of the story is boom married to Dex marriage number two married to Dex okay so I mentioned the gender and culture right and I and I've 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 sort of sprinkled throughout um the explanation here movie was set in 1940 it's 1940s uh 1940s u.s sensibilities right so it is more than not that time period and lots of traditional gender roles are apparent right so especially especially when we consider that traditional gender roles tend to be stronger the higher social class you go up. So there are uh, exceptional roles for men, exceptional roles for women, and they're very um, segregated, uh, especially in this socialite class where the women are meant to be hosts and the men are meant to be, um, you know, the ones who bring the money home and there is a lot of traditional gender role sensibilities throughout this movie and portrayal so i mean it's a good movie to then compare to something that came out in the last 10 years right and how women are portrayed versus how men are portrayed and the kinds of relationships right this is a very heteronormative relationship but you can then compare it to relationships that you see in newer movies that aren't heteronormative uh, heteronormative. So we have this woman who is um, being vied for by three different men, so to speak. And then we have the uh, the the mother and father, Lord, uh, Seth Lord and, and the, the mother of Tracy Lord, um, who act in in very distinct ways. And then, of course, the uh, Possible affair slash not affair, eh, hard to tell. Um, and um, the way that uh, Seth deflects that and and it's fine and your mother and I have talked about it, blah, blah, blah. All those sorts of things um, really play into this. And there's a great scene where um, George says, but a man expects his wife to. Um, and then Tracy says, behave herself naturally. And then Dexter adds in to behave yourself naturally, right? There's no period there. And then he gets a look from George and he's sorry. And it's very important that we dissect that because, but a man expects his wife, Tracy then comes out with, you know, what has been drilled into her head over and over and over again, behave herself, period. 
And then she says, naturally, which, you know, very, very German, naturally, you know, which means, of course. So to behave yourself, of course. But then Dexter removes that period and makes naturally an adverb to behave, to behave herself naturally. Oh, it's a great, it's a great little exchange. Happens in less than like 20 seconds. It's a really great, great, uh, great exchange. But it, it really sums up the entire uh, situational aspect of the movie, right? The, the systems on the outside of the plot, right? That are, that are, um, have their invisible hand of driving the plot. A couple of others uh, have to do with Mike Connor, Stewart's character, not really seeing Liz Embry as a romantic interest, even though he kind of does have feelings for her um, because they're co-workers and so that would be inappropriate. And, and, and so he sees Tracy and he's like, well, I could go for that. How Dinah... Tracy's younger daughter is being raised um, and how she, <laughs> oh my God, she's some of the great uh, um, comic relief in this movie, but she's, you know, when the guests first come, she's trying to impress them with her ballet skills, her French speaking sp skills, her piano playing skills, just trying to, you know, impress them with all of her talents because women are only supposed to be, um, to looked at and gawked at and to be admired for all of their talent and beauty where men are the ones who get the work done and all of this stuff. So, and, and of course this is played, um, to an exceptional T with the fact that their brother Junius is never in the movie. He's never there. And so he can be absent and he can do whatever the F he wants because he's a man and he's a lord man so you know he can do whatever she want he wants whereas Dinah has to put on this show but she gets she gets her revenge so to speak because she's told not to gossip by her mother her sister but she just does all of the gossiping and it's wonderful. It's magical. She gets so many of the adults into trouble. It's amazing. And and at the time, gossiping is considered gauche. You know, it's not it's rude. It's not not to be done. So they're telling Dinah not to do it. But then she's like, I need to do it because this is who I am. And it's magical. And then, of course, Seth Lords being caught with. Uh, a New York showgirl and um, he says this to her daughter when she confronts him Tracy he says what most wives fail to realize is that their husband's philandering has nothing whatever to do with them I mean let's be real Seth in 1940 it, it kind of does it has a lot to do with it there's there, you can rationalize it all you want but it has everything to do with the wife it has every there's no, you can't say that it has nothing to do with them and so tracy goes oh then what does it have to do with and then seth's like a, a reluctance to grow old i think which is such a cop-out oh i'm an old man and i need to see a younger woman oh no woe is me no it, that whole scene was a cop-out for him of course it wasn't his movie 
So I, they weren't going to, they they were not going to uh, wrap that up with any kind of satisfaction, especially for a contemporary, excuse me, a modern twenty first century audience as opposed to a contemporary twentieth century audience uh, would probably not care. It was like, oh, he 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 did or he didn't. Whatever, it's fine. We're following the rest of the movie. Whereas we're like, wait a minute. Did he? Because that's some shit. What he just said to his daughter <laughs> it has nothing to do with her. It's it's a one hundred percent my problem. And no 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 no. I mean, it might be your problem, but saying it's not something about your wife is a little cop outy, in my opinion. Um, I probably could be more eloquent about that if somebody wanted to press me further. But since I'm I'm not you know chatting with somebody on this one i think my read of the situation is pretty 1940 for me right so shut up um daughter of mine you have no idea what this is and it's none of your business um and uh you know i'm gonna do me that's that's what that's my read of seth lord i'm gonna do me all right man you know if you're uh, if you're happy with that, obviously a fictional character, so he probably is happy with that. <laughs> Anyways, that's what I found in uh, the Philadelphia story. If you um, want to talk to me more about this movie, if you haven't seen it, I would love, I would love to talk about this movie more because it has come, had it, it has jumped to one of my all-time favorites. As far as the dialogue, the banter, the wittiness, the actors all playing off each other, I really do, do love the mid-Atlantic um, accent of the time period. It's so great. I wish more people still talk like that. Oh, my dear. Um, not too British, but not too American. It's all the rage. Thanks for listening to this episode. Please stay tuned for the next ones. Again, if you want to support this channel, please either go to PayPal, paypal.me slash cinemapsychpod, um, or catch that link on the website, or catch some merch at cinemapsychpod.spreadshirt.com and um, buy some merch, or suggest uh, ways that I can... Um, diversify the offerings on that merch page. I would love it if you supported the channel in any way you see fit. The other way to support the channel is to just keep talking about it. Keep sharing it with those five friends that we we did a couple of years ago. Share it with five friends. They'll share it with five friends. And we'll do. We'll just do the five friend challenge. Thanks for listening again. I really, really appreciate it. On to the next 50 episodes. Until the next one. Thanks for listening. Thank you.